Christmas Eve, 1968, astronaut Frank Borman announced from the Apollo 8 spacecraft as they're orbiting a moon, the moon, reading a message for the people there. He stated this, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 25 years later, as the astronaut was reflecting and thinking about this statement that he's made on television, looking at the globe, the earth, he stated this, I had an enormous feeling that there had to be a power greater than any of us, that there was a God, and that there was indeed a beginning, and that maybe even our choosing to read from Genesis wasn't a haphazard thing, maybe it had been ordained in some way. And so, fundamental in our own thinking is this concept of a beginning, and that there was someone involved in this beginning. Our own Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson's writing alluded to this fact when he referred to a creator who had given his creation certain unalienable rights like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Somewhere modeled in our government is a concept of a beginning and someone who founded some principles at that beginning. I would share with you that it is foundational and more than you might imagine. And it is hard for us to understand reality without having a concept of in the beginning. It is this beginning that I would like to share with you for the next few months. As given to us in the Bible, it is the word Genesis, the book Genesis. In fact, if you were to turn in that first passage, that first verse, reading in the first title, let's just start with what Genesis is. Now, this sermon that I will share with you is different. It is uh, constructed to be an introduction. It's been a long time since I've done an introduction to the book. Uh, when I did Matthew, it was easily over two and a half years, close to three years ago, somewhere in 2005 that summer, and many of you weren't here. Some of you who were here don't remember it, uh, and you don't remember what an introduction is like. It's not so easy as to give you three points and a point and a specific application. It is just the main goal, orient you to the book, give you some basic facts. And so I encourage you to write some notes down. Uh, we'll get to the main points as we get into it in the next uh, couple weeks. I will also be following up this on Wednesday nights as there is so much in the book of Genesis that I will not be able to present to you everything. And so we hope to go into more detail on Wednesday nights as well as present some notes for you uh, that we will leave out on Sunday. And so that as you come in that you can get the previous week's notes and some of the study notes that, uh, that uh, I used and coming to some of the points that we're getting at. Uh, so, I expect to have several more questions as we go in this. I don't uh, have any hopes of answering all your questions, but perhaps maybe to lead you to some sources uh, to answer those questions as we go on week to week. So, just to warn you, uh, it's not like normal. So, let's look at the title, Genesis. What does that word mean? First of all, you need to know that title is not... A Hebrew title, it is a Greek title, though the book of Genesis was written in Hebrew originally. So how do we have this title of Genesis? Well, Genesis, as I said, is a Greek word, a transliteration of a translation. 
Translation, the Greek word of uh, translating the Hebrew word, which meant in the beginning of proper and fit title. But when the uh, Greeks were looking at this, they changed the word around to genonosis, which means the origin, source, generations, are beginnings. And so that's where we get the word genesis, literally meaning generations, but in fact referring to beginnings. All right, I know maybe it's something you weren't curious about, but you just need to know uh, what that word means as we go into this. And I think it is fitting as we look at the beginning and the generations, as we look and study the literary text of this, that phrase, the generations, marks some of the divisions of the book. And so when you see the generations of, you know that their new unit is being described as we go into the book. Now, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is such a profound statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think for you to understand and appreciate this, I'm going to go back into some of our, our new members' class material. Uh, so those of you who've been through that will recall this. But one of the things that we did in that class is that we tried to uh, hypothetically somehow put all the universe knowledge that, that's, that could be known, anything that could be known, and somehow theoretically place it into a box. Let's just say that blue box up there. That somehow within that blue screen identifies all that can be known. All the universe's knowledge. Everything that man has ever known. Hope to know. It's all in that box somehow. And I ask each one of you to come and please, for the benefit of us all, identify and shade the portion of all knowledge that you yourself possess. How much of that would you shade in? Or cover up? Cover up? Well... For those of us who are sober-minded about what we know or do not know, we will probably just say, well, you know, that won't take long at all. Let's just put a little speck on there. And that, that, that identifies how much I know. Yet, somehow, mankind, having very little knowledge of all that is to be known, will make theories about what all of life is meant for. From that little speck, we will try to define principles and ideas that will govern all of what is to be known. This science is called philosophy. Any of you who have studied philosophy will learn quickly that it is a history of man's theory contradicted by another theory, contradicted by another theory, and at the end of it all, you will have a, a mass record of man's theory of how this world fits and the meaning of life, and one contradiction after another until finally you get to some point who says, you know what, it doesn't matter at all. And they'll go into a nihilistic point of view where it says life has no meaning. That's philosophy. And that is what man tries to do. Yet, in that limited position, man will make a theory as to why their life is there, what is the purpose of life, what will happen to them after die, after they die, and who is God and how they get to God. It is amazing to me that you and I who struggle with algebra yet will make such huge propositions about life and death and about God. Yet that is very popular. Very popular. Uh, I, I often think about this, that Jim Carrey, when in an interview, said, you know what, uh, Jim Carrey, he has this idea that he puts all the religions together and gets the best of what he thinks is the best of all these religions and puts them all together and has this little room, this shrine, where he uh, brings all these things together and he says, this is what I believe. What makes Jim Carrey authority? 
Yeah, he's the guy that acted on Dumb and Dumber and did a good job. You know, how is it that he will make propositions as to what I should believe and what he should believe and that it is the best of all worlds? Friends, he just has a speck and you and I just have a speck. But yet, somehow we live in this world, there is death, and we have a hard time reconciling death with life, and we something within us cries out that there must be more. What are we to do? Mankind, left with only this limited amount of resources, that little speck on that screen, would, would say, you know what, well, from all the reasons and the accumulation of knowledge of mankind from prior history, and all the reasoning and scientific testing that we can do, that's what we've got, and so we're going to live with that. But I would share with you that is still not enough. It's still not enough to know what life is about and what happens after you die. What is needed? What is needed is for someone who created that box, who established all that is to be known, that if there was someone that existed before all these things to step into time and history and enter into that box and reveal to us what life is about. This is what you call revelation. How do you determine right from wrong? How do you determine what is and what is not? Is it based merely on your experiences or the reasons of others or what someone has taught you? Or do you rely on something called revelation, where someone outside time and history revealed life and what it is about? This is the heart of the matter. I'm, I'm kind of going abstract on you in little ways, but this is something that we all must think about. Now, what I would present to you is that what we believe, what I, what I mean by that is the typical Christian belief is not a blind faith, but it is a reasonable faith in which we evaluate everything that claims to be revelation. And there are quite a few who claim to be revelation and, and books that claim to be revelation. How do you know, let me ask you this question, how do you know that the Muslims are not right? They believe it just as much as you do. And they will live and die. How do you know? That a billion people are wrong. How do you know that a billion people are right? These are questions at the heart of the matter. And I will present to you that the answer to that is found in evaluating revelation. Does the Quran mark have the marks of something that is divine? That if there is a being that established everything and he revealed himself through the Quran, is there something about the Quran? That marks it as being supernatural? Is there something uh, about any of the other books of Revelation that marks it? Here's where reason comes in. We evaluate those things, and I'm convinced in, the, in looking at the Bible and the marks of the Bible, the qualities of the Bible, that it is not marked by the hands of man, but it has the markings of someone who is greater than man, of someone that is, has indeed established history itself, that has the marks of God. This is where reason comes in, and when reason finds a, a revelation that says this is it, then they follow life wherever that revelation takes them. So I bring that all to say that it is profound. When Genesis starts, in the beginning, God created. I want you to understand how important that is. Many people around this world are searching for something like that where God has revealed himself. Now, I want to bring everything together. The last two and a half years, we looked at the book of Matthew. 
Matthew presented Jesus Christ and who he is. That he is King of kings, Lord of lords. If he is King of kings and Lord of lords, Matthew 28, 19, 20 says this. If that is who he is, then there is nothing, nothing that we are to withhold from following him. And that he is to be our all. That's huge claims. More than mama and daddy, more than uh, mother, or more than uh, son or daughter, more than husband or wife, that we are to follow Christ above all. That is a huge claim to make, but it is true if Jesus is who he says he is. It's interesting, Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, you know, I am the fulfillment of the law. What was he talking about? Jesus is king, he's God in the flesh, we must follow him. After that, we looked at Christmas time at John chapter 1. Before there's Genesis 1, there must be a John 1, verse 1. What do you, what do you mean? Uh, you know, Genesis 1, 1 is, is on page 1 of my Bible. John is somewhere way out. How can John 1, 1 be before Genesis 1, 1? What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. In other words, before time began, before present tense began, there was already a past tense. What is that? What do you mean? Before time began, there was already someone there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is, is identified as the one who was God, that all things through Him was made. Without Him was not anything made that was made. That there is one, some being, some force, that established all that there was. And then, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God has always been. Time begins as his creation, and the world begins as his creation. And John 1, 1 tells us a little bit about who this God is in Genesis 1, 1. That he is the word who also became flesh and dwelt among us and gives us the title Jesus Christ. And so... Put everything in scale. Matthew, Jesus is king, Lord of lords, God of flesh, John 1, 1, that this Jesus identified was there before time began. This is the same one that in Genesis 1, Jesus is the beginning that created the heavens and the earth and the light and the sun and man and woman. Get it all together. So, who wrote this book? That's a good question. Because as we read in scripture... No one was alive when creation started. In fact, the Bible tells us in a very powerful way that in Job, that no one else was there. It says in Job 38, verse 4 and 7, God is speaking to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurement since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Where was its basis sunk, and who made its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The rhetorical answer to that is, you weren't there. Don't try to tell God what to do. That's the point of, of Job. Uh, so, who on earth wrote this? How did this happen? Well, the author of this, according to Jesus Christ, is none other than Moses. Moses. Well, how could that be? Moses wasn't alive. No, he wasn't alive. But there's some things that we know about Moses, and, and the author of this is controversial. We'll talk about this on Wednesday night. There's some other theories about who wrote the book of Genesis. I'm not going to be able to address that at this time. I'm just going to say Jesus thought it was Moses. <laughs> Remember who Jesus is? God in flesh, 
the word, you know, he was the one that was there, and he credited it uh, as Moses being the author of this. I'm going to go with that. Uh, you know, I'm just, I think it's good. Uh, Matthew 8, 4, Matthew 19, 7, 8, Mark 1, 44, these are all references that refer, Jesus referring to Moses as the author of this. So, how did he do this? If you remember the history of Moses, he was trained in Egypt. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Of all the people of Israel at that day and time, Moses was the most qualified to record the revelation of God. What was available to him, the oral traditions of his family and the people of Israel, as well as the recorded written traditions of man as accumulated in Egypt. He was aware of the various thoughts and, and, and our writings of the beginnings. Well, how can we trust this? How do we know this isn't just some Egyptian myth? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, referring to the Old Testament, says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Which means that God was involved in the writing of Moses and edited for Moses those things that were true and those things were untrue with Moses having available to him really all that could be known at that time in Egypt being trained into adulthood uh, there by uh, the Egyptians. This is the one who's leading the people of Israel out. And along the way, he starts writing and recording these things for the benefit of the people of Israel. So the immediate audience is the people of Israel as they're leaving Egypt, as well as all of mankind. Why do I say all of mankind? Well, because Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 tells us that God chose Abraham for his blessings to, uh, for a blessing to a blessing to all people. And what is implied that this is a benefit for all people to know what is found in the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis, we looked at the author, the audience. What about when this was written? You just need to know this Bible, this book, covers more time, more history than all the other books combined. Approximately 2,400 years that's uh, perhaps covered as a minimum uh, by this book of Genesis. Covers three geographical areas. Genesis 1 through 11 talks about the Fertile Crescent. Uh, chapters 12 through 36 talks about the, what the area that we know as Israel. And chapters 37 through 50 is centered in the area of Egypt. These are some of the, the settings of this time. Now, what is the purpose and theme of this book? Let me tell you something. Here's, here's the purpose and theme. Simply this. To reveal how the sin of man is met by the intervention and redemption of God. And how God used man to be a blessing to all the nations. Any good writer, storyteller, will tell you there's major components of a good story. There's the setting. There's the scene. There's the stress. In other words, there's got to be a problem. There is a search for a solution. Then there is a solution. And then there is a new scene resulting from that solution. What I would like to share with you is that in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it is a unified whole that fits that criteria. Scene, setting, uh, a stress, a search for a solution, a solution, and a new scene. What's so, what's so remarkable about that? There are about over 40 different writers for the Bible. Spanning over a thousand years, separated by continents, Time, education. Some are kings, 
Some are fishermen. Yet somehow, when these writers get together, some of them not reading one another, yet they have a common problem, a common theme, a solution, uh, and a new scene. In other words, they fit the unified whole of a story. Now, let's just have a little exercise. What if I picked out 40 of you guys and said, I want you to pick a room in one of these buildings. We're going to give you the rest of this hour, and you just write a chapter. Come back. I want you to put it all together. I gave you no outline. I gave you no uh, common problem, a struggle, or solution. I just said, you know what? Write it. What kind of mess will we have? It would not be a unified whole. But yet, that's exactly what you have in the Bible. You know, well, what about the crime? You got one person. One person who claims to be, oh, I got this from an angel. Maybe one or two other editors, but primarily one. But yet in the Bible, you've got 40 different ones. I think it speaks to the testimony that this is a work of God, not a work of man. Not easily invented. As well, as, and I even got to the prophecies. If you want to know more about that, get into our day of birth that we'll have uh, next uh, March 1st. We'll talk about that in 101 class, what separates the Bible from some of the other uh, sources. But nonetheless, that's what you have. As we get into Genesis 1 to 3, you've got a problem. You have the setting, the setting, and the scene, and then the problem, the stress. And from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way to the Gospels, you have a search for a solution. When you get to the Gospels, then the solution is identified. And as we get from Acts to Revelation, we start to see the changes are the new setting until eventually you get to Revelation 21 and 22 and you see the new scene. And at the end, we'll look at the interesting parallels between Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. Now, what are some key words? As you read through this, this Bible book of Genesis, some key words are beginnings and blessings. You'll see that repeated throughout a key phrase. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is repeated six times within this book. What are the key verses? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then Genesis chapter 12, verse 1-3, when, when God gives the covenant to Abraham, it says, In you and in your family, all the nations will be blessed. Now, let me just share with you how important the book of Genesis is. In the New Testament, the book of Genesis is quoted from over two times, over 200 times in the New Testament. Just chapters 1 through 11, just chapters 1 through 11 alone is quoted more than 100 times in the New Testament. And it's not just mentioned, it's quoted word for word over 165 times, all that 200 times in the New Testament. You see, the Old Testament anticipates the New Testament. And the New Testament continually goes back to the Old Testament and referring to Christ and how he's the fulfillment of the law. And so, as we look at this, it is foundational to reality. Let me just share with you. In Genesis chapter 1 through 11, you have the fall of man and how it ripples out. Fall of man rippling out, impacting everybody else. From chapters 12 to the end, in chapter 50, you have the narrowing down of a Redeemer who will undo the mess that man made. A narrowing down in focus on who that Redeemer will be. Now, what is, what is, what's the foundation? And when you look in Genesis chapter 1, we learn 
man's responsibility with the environment. Let me just share with you, God said think green before it was popular. Alright? <laughs> think green. He says, his way of saying it was subdue, take care of this world. I've given you that responsibility. There was an inconvenient truth before Al Gore put it out. And it has more to do with God than it does creation. That inconvenient truth. We'll elaborate that further. In Genesis chapter 1 through 11, God gave us foundational principles regarding marriage. Remarriage. He taught us how to be married. In fact, when Jesus was, was grilled as to the endurance of marriage and, and how it was to be done, he referred back to Genesis in the very first chapters and how God made mankind one man, one woman. And refer to that. And so he gives us the rules of marriage and the principles of marriage as well as family and what we're to do with family. We find the foundation for civilization in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. We find the, find the foundation for government in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. We find the foundation for the punishments in Genesis 1 through 11. We find the foundation of races and different languages in Genesis chapter 11. We find the, the, uh, the cataclysmic event. Uh, that occurs in nature, whereby nature is on a gradual uh, race toward its own self-destruction that comes about in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And the best that man can do is to bide the time and push back uh, the effects of sin in nature. We see the foundation of sorrow and sickness, the beginning of hospitals, begin in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, as well as all other manners of work and jobs that we have. Uh, you see the beginning of a clothing industry in Genesis chapter 3. You see the heart of it all that occurs right here, and it is one of the best explanations of reality that we have is found in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Let me explain. There are some who would say that at the heart of mankind, there is a good nature. That man wants to be good, and they are good at the very heart, and that instead they learn to be bad as time goes on. The problem with that philosophy, it sounds good, it's optimistic, it just does not describe reality. How do you explain war and murder throughout time? Well, you see the explanation of murder right in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. You see the beginning of sibling rivalries in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. You see the beginning of racism in Genesis chapter 11 as well. It does not explain reality unless you believe that man is sinful at heart. How can you explain if you believe that in your heart... You're good. And you want to be good. How can you explain this situation that we've got now? Half of the world's population can be sitting down watching TV. And on TV, watch the other half of the world's population starve. And man will look at that and flip the channel to hear the latest news of Paris Hilton. How do you explain that? I mean, that's, that's a... That's a riddle in and of itself. Folks are trying to explain what's the big fixation with Paris Hilton or any other next blonde bombshell that comes along. What's the deal? You know what the explanation is in the Word of God? In Genesis chapter 1, it teaches that man is inherently selfish, that they inherited from their forefathers before him, who went before and followed Adam, who at his heart rebelled against God and said, I will live for myself and not for God. And so we live in society and media with just more and more reflections of living for ourselves. 
TV becomes a reflection of living for ourselves. How do you explain that situation? Just as 1 through 11 says, man's sinful. And at the heart is in rebellion against God. What explanation do you have to make sense of the world as we know it? And to explain all the wars that have gone on and continued on? Well, friends, let me share what else that Genesis also does. Not only does it explain reality, the foundations of reality, it also explains Christ. It points to Him in continual and powerful ways. You see, in Luke, had a, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus is risen from the dead. The disciples were, hadn't got all the word out. They were kind of doubtful about the whole thing in general. But nonetheless, a disciple, two disciples on the way to Emmaus meet up with Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Now let me read to you what is said at this point. It says, and looking at their sad countenances and trying to explain it, Jesus says this, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expelled unto them in all the scriptures of things concerning himself. What if, for some magical, powerful moment, you could replace me sitting right here and have instead Jesus Christ teaching you? It would be a very good trade indeed. What would he do? As I look at this passage, it seems to me that you could very well say, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Let's look at what Moses had to say. Let's just go on, and we're going to keep on going as long as you can take it till I can point you to Jesus Christ, to myself, and how I must have suffered and died and be resurrected according to the scriptures. It's interesting, when, when the Spirit of God came upon the disciples, Peter comes and starts preaching to Jerusalem. He starts preaching from the Old Testament. Stephen being filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 7, the Bible tells us that as he is preaching, he starts referring back to Genesis. In fact, the bulk of his passage comes from the writings of Moses, and the last few passages goes into the Gospels. And so in this long, lengthy sermon that he has, most of it comes from Genesis, pointing to Jesus Christ. When Paul comes and starts preaching Christ in the synagogues, guess what he's preaching? He's not preaching from the book of Romans. He hasn't written it yet. What is he preaching from? He's preaching from the Old Testament, starting with the books of Moses and the law and the prophets. I think that another telling aspect of this is also found in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, you have the passage in the story of Moses and Elijah having a meeting with Jesus Christ. That's a powerful story. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And here they are on this mountain, Moses, Elijah. Moses representing the law, the Pentateuch that he wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Elijah representing the prophets coming along. So you have the law of the prophets, Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus Christ. And Luke chapter 9 tells us what they were talking about. It's a powerful thing. What do you think they'd be talking about? Moses could be saying, well, you know what? What do you think about, what do you think about the third commandment? Jesus, give me some insight on the third commandment. All right, did I get Genesis 1 right? Do you want to edit any of that? Or, you know, or perhaps maybe Elijah would say, well, hey, Jesus, wasn't that great? When I prayed, fire came down, and all the prophets were wiped out. Wasn't that great? And we're talking about that. 
According to Luke chapter 9, it tells us that they were talking about the departure of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ that would occur in a few days in Jerusalem. Why? Because the death of Jesus Christ was the climax of Moses and his writings and the climax of all of the prophets and their writings. And what they wanted to talk about was not their writings, but to talk about what Jesus Christ did for mankind on the death, on the cross, that he would soon face. Why? Oh, so important. We'll get to it. I'm trying to hold back, but there's something really good at the end I want to, I want to share with you. What is the structure of the book of Genesis? As I said, it is revolving around the word generations. These are the generations. You can, you can mark it up in, in large scale of Genesis chapter 1 through 11. You find a, a very significant foundational teaching there and some major events. Certainly the creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel, all being significant events that occur uh, in that time. And then in chapter 12, you see that it starts following uh, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, tribe of Judah. So what's the structure? Chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. Introductions of the generations. Chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 4, heaven and earth. Chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 8, Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 9 through verse 29, Noah. Each one of these phrases talks about the beginnings of the generations of Noah. Chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 9, the sons of Noah. Chapter 11 through verse 10 through 26, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. All these, all these chapters are signed talking about the generations of these. And as we learn through it all, God is working through history. Let me just share with you one other thing that tells me about how this fits reality and teaches reality. Two popular uh, thoughts in America today. There is the thought of evolution, which will hit the surfaces of some of this as we get to this, which you know, basically says survival of the fittest. Whoever adapts the best, the strongest, most fit are the ones who will survive. And then the other thought is an egalitarian thought. We're all equal. We're all equal. And we, are, we should respect diversity, tolerate other races. Let me just share with you that those two forces, those two thoughts, do not agree with one another. <laughs> what do I mean? If life is indeed the survival of the fittest, then whatever race, whatever people group, whatever is the most able and strongest and fittest are obligated to wipe out the other races. Genocide should be normal. But yet you have within us a teaching that says, you know, that's not right. We are to respect all peoples. We are all humans. As Rodney King implored, why can we not all get along? If you have an evolutionary mindset, it will not tolerate another weaker group. Old people will be wiped away. Mentally disabled people will be wiped away. And any race group that proves to be superior in, in, in technology or any other capabilities will wipe out the others, and it's okay. 
Well, which one do you choose? Let me just share with you that the tolerance of the races flows best from Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11. Why? Because when we look at it, we realize, you know what? Genesis chapter 11, we all try to revolt and overthrow God. God allowed the confusion of languages. We speak different languages. We start to hang out with only those that we speak. And we start moving to different geographical areas. And before long, races are developed because of our language and, and continual uh, uh, meeting and breeding with one another. The environment that we're in. But when we read Genesis 11, we know that we all come from God. And we all ultimately come from the same family. And because we all are from the same family, yes, they are humans. And yes, we are to care and respect them and love them. And we understand that they are made in the image of God. And it is the best foundation for tolerance of other people. But friends, we have a curse upon us. We're struggling to try to stay unified. And we're trying to undo the curse that God gave to us. What was the curse? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, man, woman, rebel, rebel against God. God says, you now have death. There is a spiritual death that takes place and will be reflected by the physical death that every one of us will incur. As death occurs, so does sickness, is invited, disease, and deterioration, age, all comes. You don't like your wrinkles, you don't like your gray hair, blame Adam and Eve, alright? It is all part of Life as we know it. Deterioration. As soon as we start getting born, deterioration comes. That's life. That's the curse. Work has a futile aspect to it. It's a frustration uh, that we have to depend and survive on those futile exercises that we have to redo and redo every so years. And this thing called work, uh, labor, uh, children being born, the very uh, necessity of the survival of our species is tinged with sorrow and pain, as the woman can greatly testify to that fact. That is the curse that we know it, that there is alienation between man and woman. When sin entered in, so did shame, and son, just as shame entered in, they tried to cover up between man and woman, between husband and wife, between each other, and so the shame is still with us. Uh, that continues on, that is part of the curse that we know. And not only is there shame between mankind, there's shame between God, where God could once uh, be with man and have presence with man in the cool of the day, enjoy sweet fellowship. Now sin has entered in, and the shame is also between them and God themselves, and so we do not know God as we ought. And so at the heart, there is confusion that reigns because of sin. This is the curse. This is the curse as we know it. This is what we live. Let me take you to the end. This is, this is what I'll be kind of holding on for a while. If you will turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. Remember, there's a setting, there's a scene, there's the stress, the sin of man, there's the search for solution. There is the solution in Jesus Christ. Now there is a new setting, and this new setting is accumulated in Revelation 21 and 22. And you will note amazing similarities between Genesis 1 through 3, Revelation 21 and 22. Verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new scene. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. 
And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. In other words, there is now a renewed and full intimacy between mankind and God. They can once again walk together in the cool of the day. Verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. What happened in Genesis 3? There shall be death, and as a consequence, there will be sorrow. Tears were introduced in Genesis chapter 3. They're finally done away with in Revelation chapter 21. The tears are wiped away by God himself that are there. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow. Sorrow entered in, even at birth, as we are giving birth to the new generation's sorrow. Sorrow is done away with, nor crying. Neither shall be any more pain. Where did pain come in? Symbolized by the thorn and thistle that now man must deal with, just with dealing with work and aches and pains, arthritis and all the things that come with it. God says arthritis be done away with. There is no more pain. And we keep on going, for the former things are passed away. Remember, we've got a problem, a stress, a solution, and now a new setting that comes from this solution. And he said unto me, and, or verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. What is done? The redemption of mankind and now the new setting that his, God has accomplished. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Genesis 1, in the beginning. In Revelation 21, I am the beginning and I am the end. And he says, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We experience death in, Revelation, in Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. We experience life more fully because life is meant to be interacting with the eternal one and be able to be stimulated and react to the eternal one. So now we experience life in his fullest. He that overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Revelation 22. And he showed me, verse 1, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we understand that Garden of Eden had one powerful river, and out of that river flowed the, the major forces, the major rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. In Revelation 22, we see once again a powerful river that sustains and gives life. And listen, what is the fountainhead? What is the source? What is the spring? It is the Lamb of God, the throne of the Lamb. As Jesus himself said, if anyone come after me, out of him will flow out, gush out rivers of living water. Jesus is the source. And then in verse 2, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. Tree of life. In Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we heard it was first introduced to the tree of life. It was given in the Garden of Eden. Two powerful trees, knowledge of good and evil, and the knowledge of the tree of life. Mankind partake and disobeyed God of by partaking in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God said to mankind, let us remove him from the garden of Eden, lest he eat of the tree of life in his sinful situation when there has been no fix. Now there has been a fix through Jesus Christ, and God says they can have access now to the tree of life. What happens when we partake of the tree of life? Well, it says here, which bears, this tree bears 12 manners of fruit and yielded her fruit, 
Every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. In other words, no matter what ails you, no matter what is the problem of your life, and no matter what time it is, and every time there is a fruit that is for the healing of your life that flows from God. And it is the, there is a bomb in Gilead that is the solution of the problems of this world. We find it given now in this new scene that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. Now let's look, look, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse. Praise God! I don't have to worry about aging. I don't have to worry about losing a loved one. There are no more goodbyes. And now when I love someone and it's loved freely and purely without any hint of selfishness within me, without any hint of shame within me, and therefore I can love my wife like I never loved her before. And by the way, there is no need to have an exclusive relationship between my wife and myself because my wife and myself was only to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is the perfect groom. And now my love is complete and full because there is no more curse. I can enjoy life as I've never lived it before because there is no barrier between God and me, no barrier between me and anyone else. There is no more hint of death and all the sicknesses and disease of it. It is beautiful as God intended it to be. We do not yet know. We do not yet know what God has intended life to be. But as we receive Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior, he gives us samples and tastes and little bits of eternal life as we allow God to work in our life until we get to this point. And we experience this fully, completely before him. There shall be no more curse. For the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. His servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. There shall be no night there. And they need no candle. Neither light of the sun for the light. Uh, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You remember Genesis chapter 1? He created the light. He created the suns and the stars and the moons to rule the light by night and by day. And Revelation chapter 21 and 22, he says, there's no more need of it. Because there were only symbols of what was to be found in me. And now the lights are done away with. It's a beautiful thing that we have here. And they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the Holy Prophet sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must be shortly done. And here's, you know what? When Moses wrote Genesis chapter 1 through 3, he had no idea, no idea that Revelation 21 and 22 would be written by a guy named John in the Owl of Patmos thousands, over a thousand years, thousands of years later. But yet you have two men separated by, separated by centuries, by geography, by education, and yet they write and it agrees with one another. What is the answer to the problem found by Moses? How can that be? Because Moses and John were not the only authors. God was the one who inspired it. So when you read something, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It either explains it all or explains nothing at all. It's not just some good literary text. It is either exactly as it claims to be, a revelation from God, or it's just a misguided document of antiquity. Interesting, but not authoritative. And the problem is, is when you throw out Genesis chapter 1 through 11, throw out Jesus with it. Because he was the fulfillment of all, and he heartily concluded that these were things written by God through Moses. you got to throw it away at all. It's not just Genesis 1 and then Jesus. It's all together. 
He is the fulfillment of the law. So, here's what I need to tell you as we go in. Two weeks from now, next week, bring a friend day to bring a friend. All right? I won't be talk, teaching about Genesis at that point, but two weeks from now, we'll get back into it. Genesis 1 through chapter 2. We're going to take this, not as a source that has the Word of God in it, that we've got to figure out, demythologize what's true and what's not, figure out that I'm not smart enough, makes me governor of the truth, but to read it as it says it is. And what does that mean for all? And every step of the way, we're going to point to the cross. Point to the cross. Because that is what the book is ultimately about. The cross. But here's the wonderful thing. The books are always more interesting when you know the author. Always more interesting when you know the author. I invite you to know the author. Why did God reveal himself? It says we saw. So at night time, we can call him by name. God doesn't just want you to be like a little ant out there and realize there's some creator that you do not know. He revealed himself to you. Don't waste the words of God. If these things are true, and if Jesus is who he says he is, then there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we should place above God and that we should make him our number one pursuit. And we'll find that life is as he intended when we do that. He wants to know you. He sent his son for you. He knows all about you. Will you make him Lord and King? He extends to you forgiveness. He's able to do that because Jesus died and paid the penalty so that God can justly say that if anyone comes to me, I will cleanse them and make them new. The Bible speaks of an end time renewing that's going to take place, but you know what? You and I can get a little preview of that. Preview of the end time renewing done individually as God works a miracle giving us new life. It's done by acknowledging Jesus for who he is, Lord and King, and asking him to forgive us. Will you do that this morning? Let's pray. Father, help us to understand your word as we go through. Not necessarily to satisfy every curiosity, but to know what we need to know as you want us to know. So that we can live our life as you intended. Life more abundantly. Lord, not duplicating the mistakes of old and living life for ourselves and trying to exalt ourselves up before you, but acknowledging you as Lord and King, and that we are your people, the flock of your pastor, and that you are to be our shepherd. And Lord, some of us, we're still like sheep, following our own Lord, you have laid the sin of us all on your son's feet. God, I pray that if anyone here does not know you as King and Lord, that you would speak to their heart. Lord, that they would not be content with some weird label called Christian, but they would be disciples of you. Experiencing life as a minute. Father, produce that result in every heart here. I ask this in your precious name.